Uh, our text this morning is the Gospel of John. Uh, we are continuing our study on what we've called Route 66, looking at the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible in a calendar year, which means we're having to cover a lot of ground, looking at whole books in one uh, message and one lesson. So today we are in John's Gospel. Uh, I was thinking, uh, as I was working through my study this week, um, this whole theme of health and wellness, it's a predominant theme in our culture. I was thinking about all the money that is spent. Uh, there's this sort of booming nutrition industry. There is uh, uh, monies that are being given towards research to try to cure cancer, to try to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Uh, the, the, the list goes on and on. There's plastic surgery, uh, first world issues, right, Don? Uh, the, the types of things we, we aren't happening maybe in some parts of the world, but have become a big part of, of life in our culture. People trying to sort of keep up the mirage of youth, to hang on to uh, youth as long as they can. Um, and of course, uh, we have no further to look than COVID, right? Look at the incredible lengths to which we have gone as a culture uh, to try and protect people from this nasty virus. So we all, we all value life, right? These are, these are really, uh, uh, these are good things. I think natural desires to preserve life, to, to want to flourish, and to want to live life to its fullest. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is what John is offering in the gospel. That's the payoff. We're going to look at it here in a moment. The payoff is that you might have life through Jesus. And so uh, he's offering us what we all long for, whether we realize it or not. So John's gospel, uh, who is John? All of the gospel accounts tell the same basic narrative about Jesus, his preparation for ministry, his identification there at his baptism, uh, uh, marking him out for public ministry, uh, the association with God's spirit that comes upon Jesus there at his baptism, uh, the calling of his disciples, uh, his teaching and his miracles uh, there in Galilee, and then, of course, a particular focus on his journey to Jerusalem, climaxing in his death and burial and resurrection. So that, that, that's true of all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we've noted over the last few weeks that each of the gospel authors brings their own unique perspective. Uh, they're not robots, simply, you know, just... Uh, writing based on the computer chip that's plugged in, right? They're, they're, they're writing out of their context and out of their particular life circumstances. So what do we know about John? Uh, John worked with his father, Zebedee, in the family fishing business. We know that a number of those disciples were fishermen. Uh, John was one of them. The sense is that Zebedee's business was quite profitable, uh, matter of fact, we are told that Zebedee employed other hired servants beyond just his own sons. So this was, a, uh, this was not just a mom-and-pop operation, but a pretty successful enterprise. And we get the sense that John was, uh, uh, was growing up with some measure of resources and education, and certainly that uh, allows him to write the way that he does here in his gospel account. 
Uh, John, along with his brother James, was one of the original 12 disciples, later called apostles. Um, And not only was John part of the 12, he was actually part of an inner circle within the 12. Peter, James, and John uh, had the the, the unique privilege to sort of be with Jesus um, uh, in, in a couple of very particular instances. The transfiguration, where they went up on the mountain and they saw Jesus' appearance altered. They sort of saw the veil pulled back. They saw Jesus in all of his glory and his deity. Um, There in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion, but Peter, James, and John went further in with Jesus and spent that time, that very intimate time with him in prayer. Uh, As Jesus was being crucified, you might remember that he entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John. Uh, He said uh, to Mary, behold your son. And to John, he said, behold, your mother. He passed a baton to make sure that his mother would be cared for, and he entrusted it to John. That's pretty pretty heady stuff, isn't it? That was the type of relationship that John had with Jesus. And it's interesting how John actually talks about himself in his own gospel. He doesn't talk about himself in the first person. He doesn't say, yeah, Peter and I, we went down to the lake, you know. Instead, he makes reference to himself in the third person as the disciple that Jesus loved. And I don't think John's saying he loved me more than he loved the rest of you. I think he's just saying, Jesus loved me. And he he was just captured by the wonder of that relationship. So, So John provides us with an eyewitness account and a deeply personal insider perspective on Jesus. Uh, John and his brother James were known for their volatile temperament. So um, we get a little glimpse into their personalities. Uh, Jesus actually gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Um, And we have a couple glimpses into, you know, sort of uh, why he gave them that that nickname. Uh, On one occasion, Jesus was... um, was uh, they were traveling with his disciples and and John gets word that someone else is healing in Jesus name someone that wasn't part of their circle and so John set out to stop them to put an end to that you're not associated with Jesus you're not part of us and Jesus had to sort of okay take it down <laughs> whoever's not against us is for us <laughs> uh, we're on the same team here John uh, and another instance, uh, they were in a Samaritan village. There's already bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritan village rejected Jesus' message. And so John and James said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume this lousy, no-good, rotten village? Well, that's my paraphrase, right? And Jesus, again, had kind of take it down a couple notches here, John. Uh, we get the sense that uh, that. John and James came by it naturally uh, from their mother. She is the one who came to Jesus with her sons in tow and said, Jesus, I have a request for you. I want my two boys to have the two highest places in your kingdom. Uh, so this is, this, is, this is John. This is part of how he is wired. And it's really part of the beauty of the story because this vengeful, prejudiced man 
was transformed and became known as the disciple of love. So John is, John's writing from the context, not just an insider perspective, but he's writing from the context of a changed life. And he wants others to experience what he has experienced. Uh, John, again, has a certain angle to his gospel. Um, John is the most distinct of the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. Uh, They're given that name because there's a great deal of similarity in content and order and structure in those first three gospels. And John is set apart from those three. Um, Matter of fact, uh, over 90% of the content of John's gospel is unique to John's gospel. It's not covered in the other gospels. So what, what, what does distinguish John's gospel in terms of its content? Again, he recorded none of Jesus' parables and relatively few of the miracle accounts. So that's certainly a very clear difference when we read through the content. He wrote 30 to 50 years after the other gospel accounts and addressed the heresies that had begun to surface. Early church tradition tells us that John was the only one of the 12 original disciples that was not martyred for his faith. So John lived uh, a longer life, and he was writing uh, to, to second and third generation Christ followers. There had been some developments in the early church. And we know from looking at history that many of the early false teachings and and such centered on the person of Jesus. Some denied the humanity of Jesus. They said he was just God in disguise, God wearing a mask somehow, but he wasn't really human. And other groups said, no, he was human and he was only human. And so Jesus, uh, John rather, addresses these theological issues uh, in his account. He focused nearly half of his gospel account on the last week of Jesus' life. I mean, all the gospels make it very clear that his death, burial, and resurrection were the point, right? But John does it in uh, some unique ways, Um, Matter of fact, he, he captures this terminology where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. A few different occasions. So the people, the crowds are getting excited. They want to make him king. Uh, they're ready to storm off towards Jerusalem and revolt against the Romans. And Jesus would, would slip away or he'd give a statement, my hour has not yet come. And then finally in John chapter 12, he says, the hour for the Son of Man The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Like, now is the time. And uh, as he enters into that last week of his life, again, pointing to the cross. So, in in some unique ways, John just points to the cross as the predominant focus of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He recorded 27 conversations or interviews that Jesus had with various people, again, most of which are unique to his gospel. And I think this really, so we have, what, Nicodemus, we have the woman at the well. Uh, Those are maybe a few of the ones that that, that come to the forefront of our minds. But I think this really ties in closely with John's purpose uh, 
He is calling people to believe. He wants you to encounter Christ. And he wants you to encounter Christ as you look at these other people who encountered Christ. To put yourself in their shoes. To evaluate your response to Jesus. So he does that in a unique way by including all of these conversations that Jesus had with various people. Well, John tells us why he is writing. And that's actually the only gospel account that really gives us an overt statement of purpose. And it is recorded here at the end of the gospel, chapter 20. Uh, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this succinct statement of purpose uh, provides a really helpful lens in understanding John's gospel. Uh, the, the root word for faith or believe is used over a hundred times in John's gospel. He is calling us to believe. Uh, and, and it's the, the clear focal point for him. So I want to look at several aspects of belief or faith. Uh, that are developed. And we're gonna, this is going to be kind of our little outline here. We're going to keep coming back to this purpose statement and consider it uh, from, from a few different angles. I first of all want us to consider the object of faith. Uh, John does not just want us to have some nebulous sense of hope. Just, just keep believing. Uh, don't give up. <laughs> uh, keep your chin up. But he is calling for faith and belief in an individual, in a person, in Jesus. And he doesn't want us to simply believe in Jesus as a historical figure or a wise teacher or a moral example. There are a lot of people in the world today that would look to Jesus as being a a kind person. Uh, uh, We can learn a lot from him, right? But John would say, that's not enough. (laughs) I... He wants them to grasp a couple of particular aspects of Jesus' identity. He wants them to understand Jesus as Messiah. Right? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And that term, Messiah or Christ, is a title loaded with significance. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. We would probably be more accurate to say, Jesus the Christ. Uh, it's, it's a title, and it means anointed one. And in that culture, a king or a priest would get down at, on their knees in a formal ceremony, a public ceremony, and there would be a pouring of oil on that person's head, and it would symbolize the conveying of authority on that individual. So in our culture, we have like an oath of office, right? The president stands there, hand on the Bible, uh, and he pledges, and, and he is vested with authority for the task that he or she is given. And so Jesus is God's anointed representative, his authorized 
designated representative. Jesus has come with God's authority. And this, this goes back in the Jewish mind, certainly in the Hebrew scriptures, all the way back to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and death entered into the world. And God said, I'm going to send uh, uh, the, the seed of the woman, right? There's, there's going to be one that's going to come that's going to crush the head of the serpent. I mean, and, and this promise was reiterated again and again and again throughout redemptive history. God had promised to send a deliverer, a liberator, who would make things right again. And Jesus is that one sent from God. But John goes even further. Uh, he wants them to understand and believe in Jesus as the Son of God. He's not only a great human deliverer, he is the Son of God. Uh, and John makes this clear from the very outset of his gospel account in this prologue. I want to read these opening verses here. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to Jesus, right? He is the expression of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John captures all of it here, the full deity and humanity of Christ. Jesus was the Word, he was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And through him all things were created. Jesus uh, was involved in the creation of the universe. And then it says there at the close of that section that the, the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh, right? Became human. So John is, is capturing, Jesus is this, this supreme human deliverer, the long-awaited deliverer, and he is also the Son of God. And he's calling them to believe in this Jesus. So the object of faith, John has that very clear here in his statement of purpose. There's also the basis for faith. John says, these are written so that you may believe. These are written so that you may believe. What, what does he mean by these? Well, he's talking about Jesus' miracles. But John has very specific terminology for them, and that's signs. These signs, these things that I've told you about, uh, that Jesus did, these are written so that you might believe. This is the basis for faith. 
Now, a sign is an event which has some special meaning or significance. Uh, D.A. Carson has a great definition here. Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So these miracles are not just proofs. They are indicators. They tell us something about Jesus and what he came to accomplish. And John identifies these signs very carefully as he moves through. And I want to just touch on the main ones here uh, briefly. And maybe help us to think not only about the, the particular miracle that was accomplished, but in what way it was a sign, in what way it pointed beyond itself to a greater spiritual reality. So the first of these miracles was in chapter 2, the changing of water into wine. Jesus and his disciples were attending a wedding feast near his hometown in Galilee, and the host ran out of wine. This was really bad news in a first century culture. It was a shameful thing. And so Jesus' mother Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And ultimately Jesus uh, instructs them to fill pots with water. And Jesus turns ordinary water into extraordinary wine. John tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, this was the first of his signs. And in response, his disciples believed in him. What did this sign communicate? It was a miracle of joy and fullness. Appropriate that a marriage celebration was the first occasion for Jesus' miracles. Jesus came to introduce uh, something that was going to signal great joy. It was also a miracle of transformation, again, in which one thing was turned into something else. One very normal thing was turned into one very extraordinary thing. And these themes are then carried forward in the narrative. Right? He tells the, the old aged rabbi Nicodemus that he was going to have to be completely remade reborn by the Spirit if he was going to experience new life. He declares to the Samaritans that he is the living water that would satisfy their thirsty souls, right? He changes the water to wine, and then he, 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 he tells the Samaritans, I'm the one that's going to quench your thirst, right? The healing of the official's dying son, chapter 4, royal official whose son is desperately sick at the point of death. The official travels 20 miles and pleads with Jesus to come and heal his son. It's interesting that Jesus did not reply to the man. Instead, he turned and chided the people for their lack of faith. All indications are this official was uh, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. And so Jesus looks at all the Jewish people of Galilee and says, Really? It takes this guy 
to come and express faith in me? He calls them to believe. And the, the official again asks Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus replies that it is done. And the official takes Jesus at his word. He goes home, and he finds out that his son had been healed at that very hour. And the man and his whole household believed. We're told again in chapter 4, verse 54, this was the second sign that Jesus performed. And what did it communicate? Jesus had come to bring life and healing. Jesus expounded on this theme when he said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So Jesus says, I'm come not just to heal this one official's son. I've come to bring healing. God the Father holds life in his hands, right? He dispenses it as he wills, and the Son does as well. Jesus says, I've come to bring life. There's the feeding of the crowd in the wilderness in chapter 6. You know this account. They were out in a Wilderness area, remote area, 5,000 men, and that didn't include women and children. It was a vast crowd, and Jesus turned to Philip, one of his disciples, and said, where can we buy food for this crowd? And Philip said, there's no place to buy food for this crowd. Jesus knew it, right? He was testing them. He had just turned water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana with the disciples now be able to believe and trust him that he could provide food for this multitude? Uh, We know the disciples were a work in progress, right? Their faith was not fully formed. But Jesus does go on to multiply the five loaves of bread and the two fish, and he fed the multitude. John points out that this all happened right before the Feast of Passover. So their minds were going back to Moses and the people in the wilderness and the manna that God provided for the people. But this is a sign, remember. It's not just about the bread. Jesus is pointing to something greater, a deeper reality. Matter of fact, the next day Jesus had to confront the people because they were back again. And Jesus said, you just want a free meal. Why are you fixated on bread? And he declared to them, I am the bread of life. That bread will satisfy you for a few hours. (laughs) But look to me to satisfy the hunger of your soul. Right? So that, that, that feeding is just a sign. It's pointing to what Christ is really accomplishing in his ministry. Healing of the blind man, chapter 9. Jesus opened the man's eyes, allowed him to see, and Jesus went on to declare, I am the light of the world. Um, I, I bring light into dark places. And again, it's much more than just about Jesus' ability to heal this man's physical blindness. Matter of fact, the account ends with Jesus confronting the Pharisees. And Jesus essentially says to them, I know you think you can see, but you're blind. He came to open the eyes of the soul, right? Maybe even as you hear God's word today and you hear Don Marshall's testimony, uh, God's opening the eyes of your soul today, making you realize and understand your sin and your need of a Savior, your need of forgiveness. 
The healing of the blind man was pointing towards a greater work in opening the eyes of the heart. And then, of course, raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus received word that his good friend Lazarus was very sick. There was sort of an implicit request, come quickly. But Jesus delayed, and Lazarus died. Finally make the journey to Bethany and there he finds Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, crying and grieving. He declares to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? This was a sign that was intended to point beyond just Lazarus. I am the one who raises people, dead people, back to life. So in relating these various signs, John is not simply making a case. Again, they're not just proofs, although they are that. He's casting a vision. He's presenting Jesus in all of his fullness, right? So the outlines here, the the object of faith, Jesus as Messiah and the Son of God, wants them to believe, and the basis for faith. These things are written that you might believe. Of course, in John's definition, he also identifies the outcome of faith. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. What does John mean by this offer of life? Certainly, he's speaking of eternal life. This is a prominent theme uh, in John's gospel. Uh, I had an opportunity to visit Marilyn Veltman, uh, our own Marilyn Veltman in the hospital this week. She just turned 84, and she has been struggling with congestive heart failure for several years and was readmitted to the hospital this week, and it appears that her time is short. Um, she's at peace, and she's ready to go. Those are her words, not mine. Um, her kids have had a little trouble understanding that. They're like, Mom, you, you sound depressed. You're, 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 are you giving up? She's like, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired, and I'm, I'm ready to go. She was reflecting the great hope of the gospel that this life is not all there is. We value life, but we don't have to cling desperately to it. And she was reflecting that great hope of eternal life. And I think if we understand the concept of eternal life properly, we understand that it's not just something we receive someday if we believe in Jesus. It is something that we receive now matter of fact jesus makes a statement in chapter 5 verse 24 that we have passed from death to life we even now have entered into a new reality when john was there or jesus was there at lazarus's grave and said i'm the resurrection and the life he said uh those who who believe in me uh let me get the, get the quote right here uh the one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. 
Right? We are given eternal life right now. We'll never truly die if we are in, in Christ. So certainly this, this great theme of eternal life is, uh, is in view for John. But I believe he's also thinking about abundant life. And uh, John 10.10 10 is one of the places where this becomes very clear. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So believing in Jesus does not just allow you to have hope for the life to come. It allows you to truly live now in the way that God has created you to live. We sometimes create this dichotomy. You know, I want to I go to heaven, I, uh, but, but I want to I live my life too. You know, as if they're somehow mutually exclusive. <laughs> the person who has come to Christ who is seeking to follow him, is able to live life to its fullest. After all, it's God who created us. He created us in his image. He knows how we work best, how we function best. And so many of the things that we call true living are self-destructive. It's our own ways of, of how to live that don't align with reality. And so this great theme and offer of life. And I want to just close with a, a reflection on the nature of faith. John doesn't necessarily delve into this, uh, but what does it mean to believe? It's such a strong theme for John, again, mentioned over a hundred times. What does it mean? What is involved in believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God? And I want to just, here at the outset, uh, just remind us of what's really involved here in the gospel. That the gospel is not about what I have to do. It's about trusting in what Jesus has already done. Okay? As a matter of fact, he was asked, Jesus was asked, John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What do we have to do, Jesus, to get this good stuff you're talking about? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So, uh, this, this, when we talk about faith, we're talking about trusting in what Jesus has done. And there's lots of commands in the scripture, right? Good works are important. Jesus expects us to walk as his children. Um, but it's all premised on, on what Jesus has done for us. It's all a grateful response to his grace and his transformation. So the nature of faith. John records 27 interviews. Again, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the blind man. All of these give us a glimpse into what genuine faith looks like. Some, some of these people believed, some of them rejected, but we get a sense for what genuine faith looks like. And I want to suggest just a few things. Genuine faith trusts. So, Faith does not involve signing some doctrinal statement of intellectual belief. Uh, faith involves trusting uh, in Jesus uh, for my salvation. Genuine faith commits. 
Uh, we have terminology here in John's gospel that people were going over to Jesus. They were crossing the line of faith. I think that's part of what's involved in baptism. It is a very stark declaration. I'm coming out as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's something observable. Obviously, the fact that many were following him. This is a similar type of theme that reflects uh, a, a clear commitment. Genuine faith repents. Uh, again, we talk about faith, trusting in Jesus, but that implicitly involves a turning away from the other things that we were trusting in. So that's why faith and repentance are so closely linked. We repent, we turn from these things and turn to Christ. And faith, genuine faith, endures. Jesus develops that as well in chapter 8. So John here presents a call for you and I, for his readers, to believe. And how will you respond to that encounter? Will you reject him? Or will you believe and turn to him? John asks, he calls for the question, right? He makes the ask. How are you going to respond to Jesus? You've heard the gospel declared for many of you, not for the first time. What have you responded? Have you turned to him in simple faith? John closes by focusing on Jesus' final encounter with Peter. It's kind of an epilogue at the end, and I think it's an encouraging one. Uh, we get a glimpse here, I think, of genuine faith. Not perfect faith. Peter, you'll remember, had his struggles. <laughs> matter of fact, he denied Jesus on uh, three times there around the crucifixion. But Jesus gives him a chance once again to declare his allegiance and three times to declare his love for Jesus. And Peter is restored. So the faith that's called for is not this pristine, perfect, unfettered, undoubting faith. But it's faith. A call to believe and certainly that's what's represented here in this table this morning we consider the work of jesus christ reflect on our trust in him and remind ourselves of our union 